you. If you've been paying attention, you know that's one of, that is the hymn of the month for October. And of course, the reason is because it's the great Reformation hymn of Martin Luther, and uh, October is Reformation month. Well, please turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11 once again, and we're going to dive more deeply into what has often been called the Hall of Faith. Now, chapter N, chapter 10 is a call to persevere in our Christian walk. And we read in verse 26, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Focus there on the promise, and we endure that we might receive it. But then it closes with verse 39, but we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So two questions arise. Number one, what is faith? And then number two, what does faith look like? Well, he answers the first question in verse one. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence or the conviction of things not seen. And then the remainder of the chapter, he answers the second question as he gives example after example, illustrating this is what faith looks like and provides us a catalog of many of the heroes of the Old Testament. So verse 1, of course, I said is faith defined, but then from verse 4 to the end is faith illustrated, where we have examples of men and women who lived before the Lord by faith, men who, and women who by their faith please God who trusted him, who proved him faithful. And that really is the essence of faith. It is confidence in the faithfulness of God. It's the assurance of things hoped for, not, oh, I hope what I want to happen will take place, but it's a hope, an assurance based on the promises of God. It's a conviction of things not seen, but again, things that God has revealed that he will do for his people. So this morning, we'll look at the first three characters in this hall of faith, Abel and Enoch and Noah. Now, you might say Abel's faith got him killed. Enoch's faith spared him from death entirely. And Noah's faith preserved him and his entire family from death at the flood. So let's look then, first of all, Abel, his sincerity before God, and then Enoch, his fellowship with God, and then Noah, his faithfulness to God. And for each of these saints, for the three of these saints, I hope that we can briefly look at their stories, that we can see how they fit into this definition of faith, and then thirdly, consider what you and I can learn from their faith. So first of all, Abel, an example of sincerity before God. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him and accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, you know who Abel is. He, was the, uh, he and Cain were the first sons of Adam and Eve. Cain born first, and then Abel, his brother. Turn with me to Genesis 4, because I, I do want us to look at his story. Genesis chapter 4. I'd like to read the first 10 verses. Follow as I read, please. Now Abel knew Eve, or Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore a son, Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. 
Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, we read here that Abel, the younger, was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a farmer. He raised crops. Each one brought an offering to the Lord. Cain brought what he raised, crops, produce. Abel brought what he raised, the firstborn of his flock and fat portions. And we read in Genesis that the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So we need to ask the question, why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's was not? That's an extremely important question to understand what we read here in Hebrews 11. Some suggest it was because Abel's sacrifice was a blood sacrifice. After all, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no cleansing of sin. But there's no record of God instructing Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel to give a blood sacrifice at that point. And in fact, the Hebrew word that is used in Genesis 4 for offering is actually tribute. It's different from the atonement sacrifice. It indicates a gift brought from an inferior to a superior. For example, when Solomon was king uh, in uh, 1 Kings 4, uh, it says that he was the king ruling over all the other kingdoms in his area. So these other minor kingdoms, and they all were ruled over by Solomon. And so the kings would bring him tribute, an expression of respect, an expression that says, we are your subjects. And that is the term that's used here in Genesis chapter 4, both by Cain and by Abel. So with that understanding, recognizing giving a tribute to the Lord was an act of worship. But there's not an indication that it was intended to be a sin offering. It was actually more like a thank offering. And Scripture speaks about bringing thank offerings to the Lord, particularly after times of harvest. So they're expressing their thanks to the Lord for blessing their harvest. Now, some suggest the difference was that Abel brought the best, the firstborn and the fat of his flocks, and Cain brought just, you know, whatever. And, 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 And that may actually be closer to the truth of what took place, although it's not real specific. But in the Genesis account, we see this clue, and this is very important. It says the Lord had regard for both Abel and his offering. And that word regard means he looked on him with favor. But the Lord did not regard with favor Cain or his offering. The problem wasn't the offering. The problem was the man. The reason the Lord had regard for one man and his offering rather than the other, it was more about the giver than it was about the gift. Now, Hebrews 11 spells out that it was by faith Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Abel. Or excuse me, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. 
Now, this wasn't a contest to see who could offer the Lord the best tribute. Both offerings could have been acceptable to the Lord if the men had both been faithful to the Lord. But Cain's was not accepted. Abel's was. Abel's offering was given in faith. Cain's was not. There was this one event in Abel's life. Whatever else took place in his life up until that day, this one event sums up his life, sums up the faith of Abel. He presented a more acceptable sacrifice than his brother Cain. He did so by faith as an expression of his faith in God, of his trust in God. His worship was fueled by faith. And in verse 4, we read that through which this, through this faith, he was commended as righteous. It wasn't through his gift he was commended as righteous, through which is his faith. It wasn't the quality of his offering. If that was the case, we'd have a problem because then it'd be salvation by works. It was the reality of his faith. We sing the hymn, Not in Me. Third verse says, No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. It's all about Christ, what he has done, not what we have done. We receive his commendation. We receive his approval by faith in the sacrifice of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abel wasn't commended as righteous because of his gift. He was commended as righteous because of his faith. It was by faith he offered an acceptable sacrifice from a devoted heart and life. Through faith he was commended as righteous. And God commended him by accepting his gift. Obviously, there was a degree of communication between God and men in that day that's a whole lot more than our day, right? God doesn't come to us and speak to us the way he did to, to, to Cain, but we have the written word, which is even a more sure revelation of the whole counsel of God. So it wasn't the quality of gift, it was the faith of the giver that made the difference between Cain and Abel. Now, I want us to look at the contrast for just a moment. At, let's look at his faithless brother, Cain. How did he respond when God did not accept his offering? How should he have responded? He should have said, Lord, what, what did I do? And he should have listened. And when God said, sin is crouching at your door, it wants to rule you, he should have repented then and there and cast himself upon the grace and mercy of God. He didn't. He became angry. And he went to his brother Abel and lured him out into the field and murdered him. The Lord said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? The offer of grace was there. And if you do not do well, sin's crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. But Cain's response reveals to us, this is why his offering was not accepted. His heart was angry. It was filled with hatred toward his brother Abel. And instead of doing well, he did the worst thing imaginable. He murdered his brother so Cain's problem wasn't that he brought the wrong kind of sacrifice. His problem is he came with the wrong kind of heart, a heart that was consumed with himself and not a sincere love and trust in the Lord. So Abel's faith was revealed not so much in the gift itself, but in the fact that he was commended by God. His faith is revealed, its evidence is proven by his 
God's commendation. He didn't receive God's favor by bringing an acceptable tribute. He didn't earn God's faith or God's uh, favor by, by, uh, by sincere faith. He trusted in the faithfulness of God who redeemed him, who provided for him. Abel trusted in God to fulfill all his promises and good purposes in his life. His life was cut short, but that doesn't mean that God's purposes for Abel were in any way hindered. We can't see the glory of heaven, but Abel saw it more quickly than most. Abel's faith caused him to set his heart on the Lord. He believed that God exists, verse 6, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, it's interesting. If you go back and read the Genesis account, it doesn't record a single word that Abel ever spoke. Abel is like the second character in the story. The, The character is more focused on Cain. Nothing Abel said was recorded. And yet, Genesis 4, verse 10, the Lord says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain tried to silence his brother, and he failed. What's really amazing is that Hebrews 11 tells us, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He's not crying out for justice. He's calling out to you and me. Trust in my God. He is faithful, I promise. He was faithful to me. He'll be faithful to you as well. These Hebrews believer, Hebrew believers who were the first recipients of this letter, they were facing persecution. They were facing opposition. Some faced even death itself. And Abel's voice says, God is faithful. Even if your sincere worship causes you, uh, costs you your life on this earth, even if you are killed for your faith, it's worth it. God is worth it. Heaven is worth it. That's the testimony of Abel. Well, let's look now at the faith of Enoch. Enoch shows us fellowship with God. Verse 5, we read, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel, but Genesis 5, we have uh, the the generations of Adam from Adam until Noah, 10 generations in all. We're not going to read the entire passage. You can just kind of reference, I looked at these verses, uh, as I mentioned the verses, but but I want you to notice there's a very consistent pattern here. Uh, When we read, um, uh, let's read verses 18 to 24, if we would. This is uh, the pattern we see uh, in, in well, let me back up, the, the pattern, in, uh, first of all, let's talk about the, uh, Seth's life. We're not going to read it, but I'll just tell you what it says. It tells that Seth was born to his father, Adam. Adam gave birth to Seth. And then it tells that when Seth was 105 years old, he fathered Enosh. And then it says he lived 807 more years and had other sons and daughters. But only the names of the son through only the name of the son through whom the genealogy continues ultimately to the line of Christ is named. The others are not named. And then we find this 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 uh, concluding statement: All the days of Seth were 912 years old, and he died. And that is it. Over and over, the exact same pattern through all ten generations, except 
for Enoch. In verse 18 to 23, up to that point, it fits the pattern exactly with one exception. Verse 22, instead of saying that Enoch lived a certain number of years after he fathered Methuselah, it says Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. That's a difference. It doesn't simply say he lived. It says he walked with God. And then verse 24, it doesn't say he died. We read verse 23, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and it doesn't say, and he died. Rather, verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That is the entire biblical account of Enoch's life. He's referred to elsewhere, but that's his life story right there, summed up in six verses. Now, there was only one other man in, uh, in the book of Genesis who we read walked with God. And it's in chapter 6, Noah. It says, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, the Genesis account doesn't tell us how God took him. Enoch, uh, we read in chapter 11, verse 5, it says that he didn't die. He didn't see death. He was taken up. He was not found. It, 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 it kind of brings up an image in my mind of what is commonly called the rapture. One day he's there, and the next day he's gone. And where did he go? Nobody could find him. He was raptured, as it were. He wasn't kidnapped. He was taken to heaven by the Lord. Now, that happened to one other person. Anybody know who that was? Yes, sir. Elijah. That's exactly right. Uh, In 2 Kings 2, we read that Elijah was uh, with, with Elisha, and he was handing him his mantle. He kept saying, you stay here. And Elisha's like, no, no, I'm not going to leave. I want to be with you. And finally, this chariot of fire appears. And Elijah uh, mounts the chariot, and he's taken up into the whirlwind in heaven. He didn't see death. Those are the two men in the Bible who did not experience physical death. Now, we know how Elijah was taken. We don't know how Enoch was taken. Apparently, there was no witnesses of it. He'd just gone. By faith, he was taken up. We don't know how, but apparently that's why, because of his faith. Now, the author of Hebrews, interestingly, doesn't tell us that Enoch walked with God. You see that? It doesn't say he walked with God. He uses different language. It says before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And verse 6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, I think it would be helpful for us to ask the question, how is walking with God, or how is faith rather synonymous with walking with God? Now, we've talked before about the difference between saving faith and living faith. That saving faith is that initial putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior. But living faith is the ongoing maintaining an intimate and close relationship with God. It's uh, it's not simply trusting God to move mountains. It's trusting God in our day-to-day lives, setting our hearts upon Him. Faith says that we believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God promised to reward those who draw near to him, who seek him. And faith leads us to believe that promise and then to live in light of that promise, to walk with God. What do you think it means? Do you think about that? What does it mean to walk with God? If someone were to describe your life in one phrase, do you think that they might be inclined to say, this man, this woman walked 
with God. I'm from Charleston. Charleston has all these old cemeteries. And you wander through those old cemeteries, and, and, and you look at these gravestones that are two, three, uh, even 400 years old some. And they often have an epitaph, just, just some, little, uh, some little saying or phrase that sums up the life of the person buried there. Wouldn't you love for your epitaph to say, this person walked with God? It doesn't mean walking with God means that we won't experience physical death. Everybody else who walked with God did. Only Enoch was spared that. Many saints through the ages have followed Enoch's example. By faith, they walk with God. By faith, they live what we would call quorum deo. That's a Latin phrase that means in the presence or before the face of God. R.C. Sproul said, quorum deo captures the essence of the Christian life. It means to live our lives in the presence of God. It means that we live with a consciousness, uh, an awareness that we are ever before the face of God. There's a French monk back in the 1600s. His name was Brother Lawrence. And the focus of his life was intimate communion with God. His days were spent in menial service. He repaired people's shoes. He did other things that were really kind of unspectacular. But whatever it was he was doing, he sought to foster a sweet intimacy with God. Brother Lawrence is remembered mostly for a book he wrote called Practicing the Presence of God. And there's a quote in there. There's not, a, there's not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. Those can only comprehend it who practice and experience it. If you've never tasted banana pudding, I can describe it to you all day long, but you'll have no idea how good it tastes until you do. Those can only understand the sweetness of communion with God who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Now, some of you are sitting back to go, no, wait a minute, Brother Lawrence was a Catholic monk. You're right. I'm not commending the theology of the Roman Catholic Church in any way, but the title is instructive to us. And I, I believe there were Catholic monks who sincerely loved the Lord. I, I do. But that title, Practicing the Presence of God, that communicates what I want us to see in Enoch's life. It's a daily, continual, moment-by-moment conversation with the Lord. The reality is too often we forget that we're in God's presence. It's not that we're necessarily blocking him out so we can go pursue our own way, our own agenda, so we can go dive into sin. We simply allow the busyness of life to crowd out thoughts about God. I had a friend in college who used to tell me, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And we let that happen all too often. But Enoch was not too busy for God. He was a husband. He was a father. He had Methuselah, but he had other sons and daughters too. He had to provide for his family. And the conveniences that we enjoy today are, weren't available then. Providing for your family was hard, arduous work. It took a lot of time. And yet as he labored, as he communed with his family, as he did all of the things that were part of his Life in that very ancient time, he walked with God. And he did so by faith. He believed God exists and he rewards those who seek him. He believed that life in its fullest, in its deepest, uh, richest satisfaction is, happens when we draw near to our God. That was Enoch. 
you walk with God. I want us to look for another few moments at our third hero of the faith, Noah. Now, kids, you all know who Noah is, right? You all, that's one of the first Bible stories we learn. Well, the author of Hebrews wants us to learn a very important lesson from the life of Noah. His faithfulness to God. And I want you to see, first of all, uh, let me read verse 7. Got to be back in Hebrews 11, though. Verse 7, we read, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet as, or as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's faith was genuine. How do we know that? He believed God. God warned him that he was going to bring judgment on the entire earth. In Genesis chapter 6, we read that the world was growing increasingly wicked. And so God pronounced judgment on this world. In Genesis 6.3, he says, 120 years will be the length of man's life. In other words, in 120 years, I'm ending it. And then through the first seven verses, we find this description of how rampant wickedness had become in Noah's day. But verse 8 tells us, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And again, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, the Lord tells Noah, I'm going to destroy all the earth, all flesh, every animal. I'm going to wipe them out. He doesn't tell them how yet. He says, I'm going to do this, so I want you to build an ark. And he gets very specific instructions about this ark. Make it out of gopher wood. Put rooms in it, three levels, uh, or 450 feet long. How long is that? Well, it's one and a half football fields. You think about a boat, one and a half football fields. And if you can't wrap your mind around that, go to uh, the ark encounter in Kentucky. It's, uh, it's, it's part of uh, the ministry of Answers in Genesis. It's really an amazing, amazing uh, experience. My wife and I walked through there, and I uh, I thought, is it really going to be that great? It really was. It was, it was amazing. To scale. And you could see uh, the thoughtfulness that went into how can this family of eight and all these animals survive for an entire year in this boat. And, and they thought through those things in, in amazing ways and, and learned some great lessons from that. But let me go back to Noah. Do you think he was ever tempted to think, Lord, you've got to be kidding uh, you have no idea what you're asking. <laughs> Actually, he did, right? But Noah couldn't go down to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy up some lumber and buy up some hardwood and buy up some tools. Those didn't exist. Yes, they had tools. They were iron workers, we read, before the time of Noah. But he had to cut his own trees. He had to mill his own lumber. He had to fashion his own joinery. He and his sons had to build that boat by themselves, and they had about 120 years to do it, and it probably took almost the whole time. I can't imagine the enormity of that job. What God had instructed Noah to do truly was daunting. It was even overwhelming, and if Noah had not believed God, if Noah had not obeyed God, then every human being and every animal on the face of the earth would have been annihilated. But it tells us 
Noah was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Again, back in verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We tend to think of the things not seen as glorious, the glory of heaven, and the faithfulness of the promises and the blessings of God. The things unseen for Noah were terrible. A worldwide cataclysm, a flood that was going to destroy all humanity and all animals. The survival of the human race and of every species on the earth depended on Noah. Will you believe God or will you not? Now, ultimately, it depends on God, right? We understand that. But God was, or Noah was God's chosen means to protect and then repopulate the earth. Now, the fruit of Noah's faith, it says he did so in reverent fear. He didn't question God. He didn't try to negotiate with God. Remember when Abraham was told, I look at Sodom and I look at Gomorrah, God says, and, and there's just utter wickedness. I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham tried to negotiate with God. Noah didn't do that. He, he simply got busy with what God said, obeying him. But the author of Hebrews draws our attention to his attitude, the attitude of his heart. It says, in reverent fear, he constructed the ark. That word means he, he, he stood in awe of God because he walked with God, because he recognized who God is, because he believed God. And he understood who he is before God. He lived coram deo. He walked with humility before the Lord. Walking with God doesn't produce a casual familiarity. I really love the Broadway show, Fiddler on the Roof. It's, it's, just, it's just a delightful show. And it's very interesting to watch Tevye, the main character, as he's pushing his milk cart, going about his rounds, having this ongoing conversation with the Lord. But the reality is that conversation is very casual and very familiar. There's no indication of reverent awe before a holy God. Now, I don't look to Broadway to depict reverent awe before the Lord. It wouldn't sell. But Noah walked before God in reverent awe. Now, I don't think this reverent fear refers to terror of the judgment that was to come. It would be terrifying if Noah was going to be subject to it. We read in Hebrews what a terrible thing it is to fall away. It says in chapter 10, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And those who are subject to God's wrath should be terrified. But the hard attitude of the Christian should be one of confidence. We have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens, who is seated at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, who invites us to come with boldness, with confidence before the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That reverent awe doesn't mean we're afraid he might turn us away or he might condemn us at the end. There's a confidence coupled with reverence and wonder and awe in the presence of God. Noah's faith led him to believe God. It led him to trust God, to worship God in holy fear. In Revelation chapter 15, the saints in heaven, it says they conquered the beast. They were secure 
in heaven with God, nothing to fear. And they sing the song of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. It was not God's judgment that produces fear among the saints in heaven. It's his holiness. You remember the angels who were in Isaiah 6 flying in the presence of God, covering their eyes and covering their feet and crying out constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. There was nothing casual or familiar about these angels who had never known sin and had never known alienation from God. And it says day and night they never stopped crying out his praise. So it wasn't God's judgment that produces reverent fear. It's his holiness. And the saints in heaven understand this far better than we possibly could in this life. But Noah understood something of the holiness of God. He walked with a holy God. He trusted in God. He served his God with reverent fear. And here's the evidence of his faith. He built the ark. God said, Noah, I'm going to annihilate the entire world The only way you can be saved is to build this ark. And he gives them these enormous proportions. I doubt there was a building in Noah's day that approached the size of the ark he was called to build. How many times do you think Noah was tempted to say, really? Seriously? How many times do you think he faced difficulty? Oh, man, I cut that the wrong size. Oh, man, this warped. Oh, man, how many times, any of you who've done do-it-yourself projects, you've run into those amen all the time, right? How many times do you think Noah faced such frustrations, and yet he just continued to persevere, likely 120 years in reverent fear because he believed God? Now, I've used this illustration before. Imagine you're, you live in an apartment that's in a high-rise apartment building, and you're just kind of minding your own business, and there's this knock on the door. You go to the door, and it's a fireman. And he says to you, I have bad news. The building is on fire, and we are not going to be able to put it out. All the elevators are down. All of the stairwells but one are blocked. We don't have long. You must come with me right now, or you will die. I have the only way out. You must come now. Now, <clears throat> you step back and go, I don't see any flames. I don't smell any smoke. I don't feel any heat. I I don't hear any alarms going off. All my senses telling me everything's fine. There's no danger. And so you might reason, "I I don't sense any threat. Why would I want to leave my safe, comfortable apartment and follow this complete stranger? He may be trying to get me to evacuate so they can come in and steal all my stuff. There's any number of reasons that you would reason, I'm not going to do that. But if you believe him, if you believe he's telling you the truth, there's only one response that makes any sense at all. That's to drop what you're doing and follow him and get out. And I've used that illustration many times about saving faith. You can believe that Jesus died for sin. You can believe that we needed that payment, that we are guilty before a holy God. And the wages of sin is death. And Christ alone gives us the only Deliverance. You can believe that intellectually in your mind, but if you don't drop what you're doing and run to Christ, you're not trusting him for anything. And fundamentally, you're not believing him. You can't see it. 
can't feel it, you can't hear it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, but hell is a reality. The wrath of God is a terrible thing. And Noah couldn't see or hear or smell or taste the rain coming. He had no way to conceive of a global flood. It was beyond his experience and his senses, and yet his God spoke, and he believed God. Not only did Noah believe his threat to destroy the earth, he also believed his covenant to Noah and his family. God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. I will keep you safe. I will see you through to the other side of this global catastrophe. Noah believed God. Noah trusted God. And so Noah obeyed God. The evidence of his faith is that he did what God instructed him to do. We call that the obedience of faith. Faith produces obedience. Even when you don't see, even when you don't sense, even when you don't fully understand what it is God is doing, you obey because he's God. Now, we read that Noah, by faith, built the ark. We also read that he saved his household, but we also read that he condemned the world. He condemned the world, first of all, through his godly life. The contrast between Noah's godliness and the ungodliness, the wickedness of men was enormous. His life alone shed light on the wickedness of men. But secondly, he condemned the world through his obedient labors day after day, 120 years. Men saw Noah building this huge ark. Now, they didn't have, you know, social media. It had been blowing up social media. What a joke all of this was if they'd had it. But the reality is, you know they had to be talking about what Noah was doing. Now, there's no record of this in Scripture, but certainly he had to face a lot of ridicule. Certainly, people thought he was utterly out of his mind, and so he was the subject of their derision. But Noah disregarded their scorn. He wasn't swayed by the mockery or of popular opinion. He continued to work. He cut down the trees. He sawed the wood. He crafted the joints, and he built the ark. And when the ark was completed, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives entered the ark by the instruction of the Lord. And then all the animals, two by two, entered the ark. It doesn't tell us that Noah had to gather them up. It says the Lord led the animals into the ark. And I'm sure all the people at that point thought he was an absolute nutcase. I imagine there were those standing outside going, hey, Noah, it's great out here. How's it in there with all those stinky animals? Right? But then the rain began to fall, and the fountains of the deep burst forth, and the water began to rise, and panic began to set in, and the mockery and the taunting turned to desperate cries, let us in. But the problem was God had closed the door, and no man could open it. It was too late. And so everyone outside the ark perished. They were condemned because of their sin. They were condemned because of their rebellion against God, but also, Hebrews 11 tells, they were condemned by Noah's faith. And the reward for his faith, we read in verse 7, he became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Now, I want you to pay close attention. Look at verse 7 once again. 
By this he condemned, by this faith, he condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's faith did not save him. He was saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, just like you and I are saved by Jesus' righteousness. But because of his faith, he received that righteousness. Because of that faith, he became an heir of a righteousness that was from outside of him. It wasn't his righteousness that saved him. He became an heir of righteousness that gained him access to God. It was the righteousness that comes only by grace and through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And even that, that faith is not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not as of the works, lest any man should boast. That faith the faith that Noah had, the saving faith you and I share, the living faith day to day, that doesn't come from inside of us. It's a sovereign gift from a faithful and sovereign God. True for us, same is true for Noah. God has sovereignly marked out Noah. He wasn't at birth better than anybody else. What made him different from anybody else? It was the saving grace of God. We see that in Romans 9 when, God is, uh, def- uh, when, when, when Paul is defending the, the sovereign prerogatives of God. He says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Before they ever did anything good or evil, I had already made that clear. So too with Noah and the rest of the human population. God sovereignly marked him out, gave him a heart to trust in God, to walk with him, to please him. And Noah trusted God. He persevered to the very end. Because God preserved Noah to the very end. God is faithful. He's worthy of our trust. Well, let, let's consider for a few minutes just some, some lessons that you and I can learn from the faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah. And the first thing I want you to see is their faith journeys are very different. Hebrews 12 tells us that we're to run with endurance the race marked out for us. Each one of their races was very, very different. Enoch's faith cost him his life. Excuse me, Abel's faith cost his life. Enoch's faith saved him from experiencing physical death at all. And of course, Noah's faith preserved his life and that of his family and of all living things because they trusted in the Lord. God is sovereign over your life, your race, over the things he brings into your life and my life. And it's, it's different as night and day. And some will have great affliction like Abel did. Some will be delivered from great sorrow and affliction like Enoch. Some will, be, uh, will have to labor under what seems like very difficult and maybe even fruitless conditions for year after year after year. God is faithful. And the testimony of Abel and Enoch and Noah tells us God is faithful. Second thing I want you to see is that God calls us to sincere faith when we worship him. Jesus told the woman at the well, uh, it's not about where you, where you worship or Jerusalem or Gennesaret. It's not about the form. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, yes, it's important that we have, that we're biblical in the forms of worship that we use, that our words are true, that we engage in the things that God has told us to do, like singing and praying and attending the reading of the word and the giving of, 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 of our uh, tithes and offering, of observing the ordinances. But you can do all the right forms with a heart that is not sincere before the Lord. There's no indication that there was anything wrong with Cain's gift per se. The problem is his heart. When we sing our hymns, 
Do you engage your mind and your heart so that you praise the Lord, give Him thanks? When, you, when we pray, do you, do you believe God is listening right now? And He is eager to answer and show Himself kind and faithful to His people. Do you rein in your thoughts or do you let them wander all over the place? Do you approach with confidence his throne of grace? When we read the scriptures, we believe the promises. Do we heed the warnings? Do we commit ourselves to obey the commands which he has given us in his word? When we give our offerings, our tribute, it's not to earn his favor, it's to express our thanks to God who's been immensely generous. Now, some of you are sitting there, you've not been here before, or you've only been here a couple times, you're going, you know, I kind of wonder, where's that plate? I haven't seen it. Well, we don't, have, we don't pass a plate. There's a box here. There's a box over there. There's a box by, in the back by every door. And uh, just like uh, we see when Jesus was standing at Jerusalem watching people giving their gifts. Uh, they didn't pass a plate. They had a box. And uh, we have a box. No pressure. You don't, you don't have a plate come by and go, oh, man, people are looking. I better throw something in there. You give what you purpose to give because God loves a cheerful giver. But if you're wondering, how do I give? I've had people ask me that before. That's the way. Drop it in the box. But true worship is an act of sincerity. It's an act of faith. And faith is not just this wishful thinking. It's an intelligent, informed commitment of the heart, informed by the Word of God and the promises of God. Second thing I want you to see is our faith may lead us to endure persecution or even death, like Abel's did. And if that's the case, by faith we can trust God even then. Look with me at Hebrews 11, verse 35, later on in this hall of faith. Verse 35, we read, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Amazing. But then it says something even more stark. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they may rise again to a better life. Faith recognizes there is a better life. You cannot touch. You cannot take it away. And the persecutors who would try to end us, end our lives, snuff us out, simply get us to heaven more quickly. It's not so bad. I want you to see thirdly that Enoch walked with God because he trusted in God. He believed that God rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that? Do you cultivate in your heart, in your mind, uh, this, this habit of practicing the presence of God in your work, in your relationships, and even as will you engage in entertainment and hobbies and whatever else you might do? Do you have a keen awareness that you are living before the very face of God? I remember talking to a, a, a young man about this when I was in seminary. He was a, a, a devout Christian, and he had something about him that was just just, just attractive. And we were sitting talking about that, and he talked about living this fellowship with God. He said, you know, sometimes it's just a joy to go to McDonald's with the Lord. And I was like, that's weird. But it's not weird. We live every moment of our lives before the face of God. We can walk with God. We can live in his presence with, with a humble heart, with a grateful heart, with a joyful heart. We can delight in his favorable presence and we can serve him with reverent fear because we realize who it is before whom we live, our God. Fourthly, Noah proved the genuineness of his faith because he obeyed what God told him to do. 
even when every observable indication said otherwise. But Noah walked by faith, not by sight. He wasn't swayed by the currents of world opinion. He wasn't swayed by the opposition of men. He fixed his eyes. He set his heart, his mind on what is unseen and what is eternal. And so he completed the work that God gave him to do. And while he was doing that, his life brought conviction on all who were around him. Do you make an impact on other people by your conspicuous obedience to the Lord? Are you a thermostat or a thermometer? Know what I mean by that? We have some thermostats over there. If it gets too hot in there, we adjust it, and it brings the temperature down. But inside that thermostat, there's also a thermometer. It tells us what the temperature is. And some people, we adjust to the climate around us like thermometers. We do the adjusting. God calls us to be thermostats. We impact the climate around us. As it were, we set the climate around us. Now, obviously, Noah couldn't change other people, but he wasn't going to be changed by them either. He was willing to stand alone and obey the Lord, even if nobody else stood with him. Do you believe God is faithful? That God will enable you to obey him no matter who else does or does not? No matter who stands with you or stands against you, do you believe God is faithful to reward your obedience? The very obedience he empowers you to give his faith. And we've heard about the faith of these three Old Testament saints. They were men who didn't lay, on, lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Their treasures were in heaven. Jesus tells us where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Hebrews 11 tells us about a lot more heroes of the faith, but the true hero And all of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who is faithful to all his promises. So hear me, however weak you may feel your faith to be, if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone, he is infinitely faithful to keep his promises to all those who put their trust in him.